Please turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis 18. Genesis 18, and we're going to begin in verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you use your Word, make it effective today in our ears and our hearts. Teach us, instruct us, cause our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. And Lord, um, use your Word. Make it uh, do that work that only you can do in our hearts to change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we pick back up with Abraham. He's still walking with the Lord at this point. As we see in the text, the two angels that came in this appearance with the Lord uh, have departed. They have headed toward Sodom, and we'll pick back up with them uh, in a truly sad part of the story a little bit later. Uh, But this particular episode kind of leaves us scratching our head a little bit. Right? I mean, what is this all about, this back and forth? It brings up questions in our minds about prayer, how we should approach God. It brings up questions about justice, what is fair. It brings up questions about suffering, compassion, our attitudes toward the wicked, even the evil in our own hearts. But let me say at the outset that Abraham is not bartering with God. This is not Abraham making a deal. It can seem that way in this back-and-forth exchange, and particularly when we consider the culture of the Middle East. If you've ever traveled in that part of the world, you know that in any exchange, it is not only normal, it is expected that you barter or bargain. Uh, Middle Easterners are often dumbfounded when Americans come over and they name a price and Americans just pay it. So if you do ever get the chance to travel, know that that's expected, that that's what you're supposed to do. That's not what's happening here. In any kind of deal or financial transaction, the purchaser has power, as does the seller. 
And what both are trying to do is give up as little of their power as they can in the hopes of the other giving up more of their power that they will then in turn benefit from. It's an exchange. One is a supplier, one is a customer. And that is not what is happening here between Abraham and God. We see Abraham continually acknowledge that he has no power. He approaches the Lord with a reverent fear, a healthy fear, and he makes no appeal to himself. He's not appealing to his wishes, his wants, his desires, his, his righteousness or perceived righteousness or anything in that way. His appeal is solely based on the character of God. He knows God has all the power. He knows that God holds all the cards. So he's not trying to argue against that reality. What we really have here is a picture of prayer. We don't have these opportunities. I don't know of anyone that's experienced a theophany where God has come in the appearance of a man and walked with him or her. Uh, But this is a picture of prayer, how we are to approach God with our requests. He, He doesn't use these words, but we see the tone of Abraham saying, in essence, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And yet, in all of his rightful submission and holy fear before the Lord, we also see that Abraham has a determination that is certainly admirable. When our kids were younger, and I I thought about this even when I wrote it and reread it, I almost changed it last night, because they still do the same thing as teenagers. They would ask for things incessantly, just over and over and over. You know what I'm talking about? And... Leslie and I would often comment, we should pray like that. You know, like a a four-year-old who wants a piece of candy. You know, that's how we should pray. Unlike parents who can be worn down, though, God is immutable. He never sways or changes. And yet we're called to pray. Somehow in this great mystery of prayer, the God who created all things, who's sovereign, who is immutable, He never changes has established with us, those he created in his image, this conduit of prayer, this mysterious thing that somehow we can come before the one who knows all things, who is powerful over all things, and who rules over all things, and bring our requests before him. There's some great mystery in that. If you want to understand all of that, that's great. But don't expect to understand all of that, right? It's admirable that we want to understand prayer and how it works. But know that there is great mystery. And yet at the end of the day, we're called to pray. And so we who are reformed and committed to the sovereignty of God, sometimes we might be tempted to think, well, God's sovereign, He's in control of all things. Why should I pray? Don't fall into that trap. We're called to pray. We're commanded to pray. And we see Abraham here bringing his requests before God. This is one of just many examples in Scripture that we see of persistent prayer. I mean, Jesus taught of persistent prayer in some of his parables. Luke 11, chapter chapter 11, verse 5, where the the man knocks on his friend's door until he gets him to answer. That's an image of such persistent prayer. The Psalms are full of persistent prayers where David says a lot of the same things over and over again, repeatedly, persistently. 
In Colossians 4, Paul writes, continue steadfastly in prayer. Some of your English translations render that persist or be persistent in prayer. That's a good translation. Steadfast or persistent, it's the same idea. So we're commanded not only to pray, but to be persistent in prayer. Is there mystery to what that means for a God who is unchanging? Yes, and yet we're still commanded to be persistent in prayer. Going back to the idea of the kids when they're little, Jesus taught us that our faith is to be childlike. And a child knows not only how to trust, but a child understands that continuing to ask isn't opposed to trust. A child understands that continuing to ask is not opposed to trust. Your children trust you. I don't know if I can say about teenagers. Your children, when they're little, they trust you. Right. But they know that they can continue to ask you. Why? Because they know you love them. And you know that God loves you. And He has called you to be persistent in prayer. So today in this passage, we see this, in essence, prayer of Abraham filled with faith and determined to appeal to God and His character alone. So... We start in verse 22, Abraham's standing before the Lord, and there's some question as to uh, whether uh, this should be translated, Abraham stood before the Lord, or the Lord stood before Abraham. I won't go into all the history of why there is that question. It really doesn't change the meaning of the text in any way, because what we have is both the posture of the man making the appeal, as well as the posture of the one receiving it that God readily receives Abraham's request. He could rebuff him. If you imagine, you remember the story of Esther, and this is true in, in our understanding of kings and, and monarchs and so forth, that uh, you remember if the, if the king uh, didn't acknowledge you when you came in, it was death often, at least banishment. You weren't, so you had to be acknowledged. And so when we come before God, we don't have to worry about, is he going to banish us or... or you know, off with your head, he has already made a way through Christ that we can boldly approach the throne. So that's how we are to come. It is a picture of the posture of prayer. God stands to receive our requests. In verse 23, it goes a step forward and says Moses drew near to God. I mean, you get this image that they're walking together at this point. The other two have gone. Moses or Abraham, rather, kind of leans in, gets close. And again, my mind goes to verses like James 4.8, draw near to God, and He will what? Draw near to you. That's the image of prayer. Not a king who would you have to wait on his approval or, or acknowledgement or hope that he hears you. You draw near to God in prayer. He will draw near to you. That's the promise that is ours. Or Hebrews 4.16, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what we see here is the posture of prayer, how we are to approach. As we draw near, God draws near. As we approach boldly, He offers mercy and grace to us. We have been made friends with God. That's what Christ has accomplished for us. Something Abraham was learning uh, and experiencing as he looked in faith, right? That he was a friend of God we saw last week. 
And then Abraham begins to make his appeal. He starts with 50 and he works his way down to 10. And with each of these appeals, except one, they're all marked with these statements of humility. He starts out, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord in verse 27, I who am but dust and ashes. He's not simply throwing that out there. He is in this conviction that as he stands before God, he recognizes who he is, what he is, a created being under the hand of the sovereign creator. Verse 30, O let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Verse 31, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. And 32, O let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again this once. So while we see the boldness of Abraham, I mean, there's boldness in just, you know, keep going. You know, 50, 45, 40, I mean, he works his way down, right? But we also see this humility and this desire not to stir up the anger of God. So there's a picture of incredible respect, holy fear, we might call it, uh, in how Abraham makes his appeal. He's also honoring God in appealing to God's character. That's what he is uh, uh, going to, reminding God who he is. It's not that God forgets who he is, but it, it, it almost serves as a reminder to Abraham who God is. And we see this in prayer. We, again, the Psalms are an incredible picture of this, where the psalmist uh, acknowledges the character of God. There's so many pictures of the attributes of God in the Psalms as these prayers are lifted up. But you, almost, uh, you, you also could think of some of Paul's New Testament prayers, like 2 Corinthians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. That's how he starts his prayer, by naming truths about God. Or, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy. And it goes on, Ephesians 1. That whole introduction is a prayer of Paul's. You can look at it later. It's longer. Ephesians 1, where he is claiming, proclaiming who God is. He's praying according to God's character. And so this is also the, the, the mode in which we're to pray. We see the posture, now we see the mode in which we're to pray. It's not just, you know, not that this is a formula. Don't ever turn prayer into a formula because then it just becomes rote. It's a relationship, it's a conversation. But you know this in other relationships and conversations as well. If you in, say, a marriage or a friendship uh, some kind of relationship that you have, if all of you did was exchange lists of what you wanted back and forth, how deep would that relationship truly be? And yet, isn't that kind of how we treat God sometimes? We go to the Bible and we read the list of things and we turn it into some kind of legalism. We, in turn, go in prayer and give Him our list of things and expect Him, because we've kept the rules that He owes us, to do something in return. Our hearts, that's how we're, we're, we're messed up in that way. So we've got to come back and remember not only the posture, but also the mode of prayer. It's a relationship. And we're coming to God, acknowledging, praising, proclaiming who He is and all that He has done for us. Abraham then brings these questions to God. And these are not questions of doubt. 
but rather questions based on what Abraham knows about who God is. He says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? You know, that almost might sound a little disrespectful if you don't understand the context of his prayer, that he is both basing this in his humility and reverent fear before God, but understanding too that as a friend of God, he can boldly proclaim what is true about God. It's not disrespectful to boldly proclaim to God what is true about God. Now, be careful because our minds like to make up things that aren't true about God, and sometimes we could go and say, why haven't you done this, or you should do that, or rather than having our minds so steeped in God's Word that we know what is true about Him, and then can proclaim that in prayer. One question that might come up is, who is Abraham praying for here? Is it Lot? You know, his nephew is there in Sodom. He keeps going back. Abram's already saved him once. He saved the whole town, in fact, in Genesis 14. And, you know, Lot keeps kind of like a magnet, keeps going back. It's a bit of a knucklehead. Is Abraham praying for the city, the whole city, that there would be more time for repentance, desiring repentance? Or is Abraham praying that God would withhold justice altogether so that none would be destroyed? Well, in working backward, I think we can rule out that last option because nowhere in his prayer does Abraham ask that God would hold off his justice. He actually appeals to the justice of God. He appeals to the justice of God in asking that the righteous would not be swept away with the wicked. Implied in that is that the wicked should be swept away. So Abraham understands what wickedness is and what justice is. He's not suggesting or asking that God withhold it, but rather he's praying that those who are righteous would be preserved. Far be it from you, he says. It almost sounds like Paul's, uh, you know, when he assumes the same question popping into our mind in Romans 9, where he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. It's that same kind of echo. This is what Abraham is arguing, that God is always just. So while it wouldn't be just or fair for the righteous uh, to go the way of the wicked, although we have to qualify that a little bit, who is righteous? We're going to talk about that more in a minute. It would also be unjust for the wicked to be spared judgment, wouldn't it? Now, a lot of times we think of these things in terms of um, ideals, And when we're far removed from things, it's so much easier to say, uh, you know, that maybe the wicked shouldn't be, you know, judged. They should be given more time or whatever. But if you have ever been personally wronged, if you have ever personally received or, or, or lost, I should say, something at the hand of someone's wickedness, you tend to feel a little different, don't you? And most of you in this room, something just popped in your head. You're quite aware of something. that, that, you, that There is a, a crying out. You know, we talked about this last week, the outcry from Sodom. It wasn't a literal voice, just like with the outcry of Abel's blood after Cain killed him, that God knows of injustice. He hears it. We kind of hear that cry as well. 
that we long for wickedness to be judged. Of course, not our own, but we do long for wickedness to be judged. So God, or Abraham rather, is not praying for God to withhold judgment. I do need to say one more thing before we return to the original question, and that is, are there times when what Abraham is describing here that shouldn't happen does happen? In other words, are there times when God's judgment consumes the righteous with the wicked? Well, we have to be careful. Um, we don't always know what are God's acts of judgment. Uh, in the sense we know what in Scripture God calls judgment, but in terms of what's happening around us when we see tragedies, we typically call them tragedies. We have to be very careful not to label them as judgment unless God were to somehow reveal that. But we also need to remember that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understand, understands. There is no one who seeks God. We see that in Romans 3. It's quoting Psalm 14. And it's a reminder that none of us in and of ourselves are righteous. Our righteousness is in Christ alone. Our righteousness is imputed. It is a gift. It has been given to us. And so none of us can claim innocence. We are all born as sinners. But you wonder, there's certainly a difference, isn't there, between those who walk in faith and those who practice wickedness unrepentantly which is what we see in Sodom and Gomorrah. And there is a difference. There is a difference. The difference is that those who are trusting in God are credited with righteousness just like Abraham was. And those who have rejected God are condemned to judgment. But that deliverance, that salvation that is ours by faith in Christ is from the final judgment. We're not guaranteed to be saved from all what we might consider judgments or tragedies or uh, things, bad things that happen in this world. Jesus himself gave clarity on that in Luke 13 where he says, Do you think that these Galileans, referring to some who had died, were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Those are Jesus' words. And they help us to process when we see difficult and hard things. Those who have trusted in Christ, who have repented, will not face eternal judgment. And those who have rejected God will. So let's be careful and let's not look at whether they're natural or man-made tragedies and try and figure out who is being judged or not being judged. Instead, we need to see these things as Jesus says in both of these instances that they are calls for us all to repent. They're called for unbelievers to, to repent and turn in faith to Christ. But they're calls for us who are believers to also walk in repentance to live lives that are repentant. So then, going back to the original question, who is Abraham praying for here? Well, I think it certainly would include Lot. I mean, Lot is, after all, family. I mentioned he was a bit of a knucklehead, but you still love your family. That's one of the things I continue to learn in this life, is when everyone else is gone, family is there, uh, typically. Uh, Most people have that experience. Um, Lot was family. So Abraham certainly would have been praying for Lot, and in the end, Lot was 
saved. He was taken out of Sodom and Gomorrah before the destruction fell. But I think there's also a strong argument here that Abraham was praying for more than just Lot. Abraham understood that those who are truly righteous were eternally secure, and they could have been removed just like Lot was. But Abraham says, will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50? He's praying corporately for Sodom and for Gomorrah. He's showing concern for the lost. He has shown concern for the whole, even though he doesn't know that the 50 don't even exist. The 10 don't even exist. He doesn't know that. So he's praying for them as lost people, showing compassion and a hope that the gospel might bear fruit. His question, which he's asking because, again, he doesn't know the answer, is whether Sodom and Gomorrah are beyond all hope. Now, again, it's easy for us to look and kind of look down our noses a bit and think, oh, yeah, they're beyond all hope. It's horrible, you know. I won't take you there, but there's a passage in Ezekiel where Ezekiel the prophet, the prophet, is calling out Jerusalem, the people of God, and saying that they are worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet they were saved and delivered. God saved his people. So were Sodom and Gomorrah, from a man, a human perspective, beyond all hope? Abraham didn't know that yet. That's why he's praying. And that's why we pray. We don't know the end result. We don't give up on those we love or some that we don't love or struggle to like. But we pray for the lost. We pray for our unsaved family and friends and we don't give up until their days are over. We pray for nations. We pray for our own nation. We pray for other nations regardless of how hopeless it seems to us. You know, if all you do is watch the news, you may not want to pray for Iran. Did you know that the underground church movement in Iran is growing now at a faster rate than the underground church in China? Underground church in China the last couple decades has grown tremendously. Iran has now surpassed that in number. Should you pray for Iran? Yeah. Should you pray for believers in Iran? Yes. Should we pray for unbelievers in Iran? Yes. Pray. Pray for the nations. Pray for our co-workers who are hostile to the gospel. Pray for our neighbors who deny God's existence. Pray for that uncle who makes fun of you for the faith that you profess. Pray, pray, pray. Why? Because until God acts in judgment, we can still appeal to him as Abraham did for Sodom and Gomorrah. Pray for the lost. Pray not only because you're asking or because you want it, but pray according to God's steadfast love and mercy. Do you see what Abraham's doing? Praying according, not just because I want it. He did want it. That's why he was, he was asking this of the Lord. But he's praying according to the steadfast love and mercy of God. Pray for your covenant children this way. Pray according to the covenant. Remind God of the covenant. He hasn't forgotten. But pray according to it that, God, you would save my children who are not walking with you. Pray this for His glory. Pray this for His fame. And then be ready to receive God's answer according to His will. That was Abraham's posture, right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That, that posture is not uh, an appeal that, that Jesus taught us to pray this way. It's not some appeal that, some, that, that God somehow needs to manage 
getting things done on earth the way they are done in heaven. That's not what Jesus is teaching us there in terms of how we pray. God is God. He's sovereign. He's quite capable of getting his will done. But I think the reason Jesus teaches us this to pray this way is that we submit our requests, our hopes, our dreams to the will of God. We ask and we're persistent but it's always in a posture that we're asking according to God's will. We understand that everything we bring before Him is according to His will. Even the good things that we can't imagine Him saying no to, we pray according to His will. And then uh, Abraham, um, we see, doesn't get any promises. I mean, God doesn't make any promises. He simply says these if-then statements. Right? We'd love to see God give some kind of promise. He just says, if there are 50, if there are 45, all the way down to 10, that there would not be judgment. Now, it's interesting that Abraham stops at 10. Shouldn't he have gone further? He have gone down? I mean, there weren't 10. We learned that. I mean, I know I'm giving spoiler alerts, but I'm assuming that a lot of you guys know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. There weren't even 10. It's interesting, I think... Uh, to note that 10 is, uh, had become or did become the rabbinical tradition uh, for establishing a synagogue. That in a new area, uh, once there were 10 Jews there, then they would establish a synagogue. I learned of this uh, some years back when I was working for MTW, that MTW also kind of took the same idea for how we know when a church is planted. Because back a couple decades ago, there were some in some not any necessarily with MTW. But, uh, there were certainly some missionaries zealous to um, not only spread the gospel, but also to kind of communicate good things back to their supporters. And so as they would go through areas and pray with people, and when people trusted Christ, they would say, a church has been planted. Or two or three are gathered, right? They would take that idea. And that became somewhat confusing then to supporters because hundreds of churches were being planted and people expected the landscape to look a little bit differently. And so mission agencies like MTW took this same approach that we'll say when we've got 10 church members, then we can call it a church plant. So there's something um, not magical, but something significant about that number 10. We know we've looked at the number 10 already in Genesis that there's a, a picture of completeness with it. And for whatever reason, this is where Abraham stops. And as we find out, there weren't even ten. There were only four. And even one of the four doesn't make it out alive. Because of God's justice, those who are part of the community of faith. This is a picture of covenant right here with Lot and his daughters and his wife. We don't know exactly where they were in terms of their personal faith, but because they were part of the family of faith, the covenant family, God took them out. He rescued them. They were not swept away with the wicked. And then we have the end. Verse 33, the Lord goes his way. Abraham, when they're done, finished, goes home. This was the end of the interaction, and the next time Abraham sees the Lord at work, it will be when... Fire is raining down in judgment. But what this passage does, uh, in a sense judicially, is set the stage that no one can cry not fair. What God is about to do, as 
difficult as it is sometimes to understand God's judgment, what He is about to do is right and just and completely fair. Abraham made the case. He went into the court. He, gave his, he made the best defense that he could, and yet there weren't even ten righteous. This example, as it were, would not only serve as a teaching tool for the people of God in the coming generations, it's a teaching tool for us today. I mean, we, as we're going to continue to unpack this, most of us understand Sodom and Gomorrah and what it represents, the story of God's judgment, that wickedness will be judged. It may not happen when we think, it may not happen when we expect or how we expect, but God is just. And even as Abraham pleads for these cities to be saved, cities that he had fought for, remember again, Genesis 14, cities, he rescued these folks from these kings that came in and tried to uh, destroy them. Abraham recognized at the end of the day, God has the absolute right to judge. This is where he submitted himself. And this, in turn, serves as a gracious warning for all of us. Church attendance, good works, being friends with Christians, none of that will save us. All of us are deserving of the absolute wrath of God because all of us have turned away in sin. And so it's first and foremost a warning to any who don't yet believe. Come to Jesus Christ in faith. Come to Him and in Him find mercy. In love, he laid down his life to deal with this just wrath of God so that it doesn't fall on us, so that there there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't wait. No one knows the end of his days will come. The hymn writer writes, Come, ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous not the righteous, sinners Jesus came to call. This is a warning to us too who, have, who do believe, right? To put off wickedness, to understand the, 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 the damage of wickedness to our own lives. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, guard your heart and mind. Fight the good fight. We're told to resist the devil and he will flee from you. It is a battle that we fight living in a wicked world. And we battle not only against the world. We battle against a wicked adversary. And we battle against our own flesh. Fight the good fight. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Be determined. Be persistent in your prayer. Bring all of your requests boldly before the gracious throne of God. God is just. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you take your word and plant it deeply into our souls. Put these seeds down. 
give water, light, produce growth. Lord, so that we understand both the need to flee wickedness and fight the good fight of faith, but we also know, Lord, to come to you in prayer, persistent prayer, determined prayer, to pray for those who are lost, to pray for those who are needy. Lord, that we would recognize the greatest need that anyone has. The greatest need anyone has is the need to, for their sins to be atoned for. And so, Lord, we pray for a lot of things. And may we, we continue to, to, to be faithful in prayer, but Lord, may we be, recognize that our friends and our family and our co-workers and our neighbors, the greatest need is for their sins to be dealt with. And in Christ alone can anyone find salvation. So Lord, we pray for the gospel to go forward. I pray for anyone here today who is hearing the gospel, Lord, that you would not only open their ears, but bring them from death to life in faith. And Lord, for the opportunities that are before us this week, may we be diligent to not only pray for those we know who are lost, but to also be ready to give an answer for the questions that they would bring to us, that we could speak to the hope that we have in Christ. And then, Lord, cause our eyes to stay fixed on you as the King in heaven, who not only provides, but who rules and reigns and cares for our every need, that our eyes of faith would be on you, that we would not get distracted by the temporary things, the temporal things in this world that, that uh, would... would uh, Keep us from running the, the, the course of faith, but keep our eyes fixed on you, you that we may walk faithfully with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.